Welcome to Family of Conviction. This is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at... I'm your anonymous host. On March 15, 2015, my friend Vincent Dewey was convicted of child molestation, a crime he did not commit. Sitting there and listening to these accusations itself was, I want to say, stomach-turning. I'm a friend of Vincent Dewey's, and I'm hosting this podcast anonymously due to the vindictive nature of the bad actors involved. Their names and any other non-voluntary parties will be redacted from these episodes for the sake of legal protection. The judge was biased, one million percent. We even put that in our appeal. My guide on this journey is Vinny from inside prison in the prison law library where he works tirelessly to prove his innocence every day as a paralegal. After I was convicted, my friends started doing research, and I started doing research once I started learning the law. They were trying to get a recuse off the case. In this episode of Family of Conviction, we're going to cover the judge in Vinny's trial, her demonstrated bias towards the prosecution, and the general negligence she showed in securing that Vinny received a fair trial. The judge who presided over my case and the one who sentenced me, which was later modified, was a longtime co-worker of Kathleen Rice in Brooklyn and Nassau County, and a co-worker of the assistant district attorney who was presiding over the trial in my prosecution. Her name is Teresa Corrigan, and we introduced her in the last episode in relation to District Attorney Kathleen Rice. I highly recommend listening to that episode prior to this one to get a full picture of the prejudicial and political roadblock Vinny's up against. Teresa Corrigan began her career in the Brooklyn DA's office alongside Kathleen Rice. Following that, she was appointed to the Sex Crimes Unit in Nassau County by Kathleen Rice, and she was elected to the Nassau County Court Bench in 2013. During the term of my trial, she was in the news for something called impartiality and bias. We got her recused on Jesse Friedman's case. That's Lonnie Sori, referring to Judge Teresa Corrigan. I am the co-founder of Families and Friends of the Wrongfully Convicted. I am a crisis manager and a wrongful conviction expert. Following the success of the 2003 documentary Capturing the Freedmans, Lonnie partnered with the film's director Andrew Durecki and its subject Jesse Friedman in an attempt to have Jesse's conviction overturned based on convincing evidence presented in the film. Are you a child molester, Jess? Nope. Did you ever do it? Never touched a kid. Did you do what they said you did? I never touched the kid. Years later, Andrew Durecki, the filmmaker who made the film, embarked on an effort to overturn uh, Jesse's conviction. Andrew Durecki, who's responsible for Catfish. And we did a reinvestigation and got tremendous new evidence. We got five of the victims, the young children, to recant their testimony. You have to understand, Jesse's case, the children were seven years old. Some of these children were interviewed for 15 hours without their parents in the room. This was a complete fabrication. There was no evidence. Jesse was charged with 243 counts of sexual abuse. He would have had to rape a child every seven minutes in his house over a period of days. I mean, it was absurd. There was no physical evidence. I mean, this was an upscale Jewish community. You could bet your ass that these parents, of which I am an upscale Jewish person, <laughs> you can bet your ass these parents had their children at doctors within seven seconds of the arrest. And there was no physical evidence that showed any kind of sexual abuse of any sort. There was nothing. And yet it created a tsunami of acrimony and, and accusations that resulted in Jesse being forced to, to plead guilty. Forced to plead guilty in court, but not admit guilt. Jesse had maintained his innocence the entire time. The documentary goes into incredible detail on why a person would plead guilty to crimes they did not commit. I highly recommend giving it a watch if you're interested in this subject matter. 
uh, and Ron Kuby was Jesse's lawyer, and Jesse filed an appeal, federal court, much less the state court. Unfortunately, the federal court went all the way to the Second Circuit, which is about the highest court in the land outside of the Supreme Court. And the Second Circuit said that Jesse, there was some technical issue where they could not overturn Jesse's conviction, which was really pathetic. But in their decision, they said that Jesse Friedman was likely wrongfully convicted. And what they did was they said they sent it back as an advisory. It wasn't a formal remanding, which is you know sending it back to the court. They sent it back to the prosecutor in Nassau County and asked the prosecutor to reopen the case to conduct a reinvestigation. That prosecutor was Kathleen Rice. Sound familiar? The district attorney who brought charges against Vinny. Kathleen Rice, when all this came out in the public, she was head of the office, so she put together a panel to review his conviction to see if it was just. Actually, they, I think the court asked her to have a hearing. She agreed to do a, re, quote, reinvestigate it. And she brought on some very well-known advisors, like Barry Sheck from the Innocence Project, Susan Herman, uh, two or three other people. And we got very involved in presenting Jesse's new evidence to this committee. Tremendous new evidence. Here's Lonnie referring to some of the victims who ultimately recanted their testimony many years later. We have tapes where they say, on the life of my child, nothing ever happened to me. Nevertheless, Kathleen Rice wrote a report, and people like Barry Sheck and Susan Herman and others signed off on it because they were political, saying that Jesse was guilty. So we then took this evidence that we compiled and went to court, and we were granted a hearing based on um, newly discovered evidence and absolute innocence. Now, his actual innocence claim now gets to be heard by Teresa Corrigan, which is her longtime friend, my judge, and from all working in the same office. And interestingly enough, Ron Kuby, Jesse's lawyer, saw the problematic nature in having Judge Teresa Corrigan try this case, a case prepared by her former colleague, Kathleen Rice, and moved to have Judge Corrigan recuse herself on those grounds. His attorney was blowing this up in the New York Law Journal. It was on the news. Here's a direct quote from Ron Kuby. The basis of the motion and the fundamental issue that suggests to any casual observer that the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned is that she is an insider rather than an outsider. For six to eight years, Judge Corrigan sat not on the bench, but as the top district attorney to Rice. In October of 2014, Judge Corrigan denied the motion for a recusal. However, in 2015, she did recuse herself, acknowledging the appearance of impartiality. 2015, the same year as Vinny's trial. So after I was convicted, my friends started doing research, and I started doing research once I started learning the law, and found out that this relationship was going on, and this accusation of her impartiality, that itself was going on for my entire trial, and my attorney never brought it up. We never knew about it. I found out through a FOIL request, she ended up recusing herself from this case for the exact relationship that she had with the individuals in my case. So you can see why Vinny, as he sits in prison, adamantly contests that Judge Corrigan should have also recused herself from his case. I'm now at a standstill because I have to present this into the court against my attorney for not bringing this up. Now the question we hope to answer here is, is it reasonable to think that Judge Corrigan would actually be biased against Kathleen Rice's cases, or is it just the appearance of bias? In our previous episode, we read a number of passages from a Newsday article written by Gus Garcia Roberts about Kathleen Rice's record. Here's a relevant section, read here by an actor, about Kathleen Rice's transition from the Brooklyn DA's office to Nassau County. 
It will be a real prosecutor's office again. Rice declared at her victory celebration in November 2005 after seizing the Nassau County District Attorney's Office from 31-year incumbent Dillon. She remade the office in part by firing veteran prosecutors and replacing them with former Brooklyn colleagues groomed by Hines. Rice hired Teresa Corrigan, a Kings County prosecutor for 16 years, to become a bureau chief. Corrigan, now a Nassau County Court judge, wrote in her resignation to Hines that it is with great pride that I will be taking everything I have gained from this office and applying it to the problems facing Nassau County. So by Judge Corrigan's own admission, she carries with her the same problematic values that Kathleen Rice learned in the Brooklyn DA's office under Charles J. Hines, an individual heavily associated with wrongful convictions. So now we have a prejudicial relationship between all three of them. Not to mention when Kathleen Rice staffed this new office, she also hired Karen Stepner from the same Brooklyn DA's office, who would ultimately be the prosecuting attorney in Vinny's trial. Kathleen Rice, Teresa Corrigan, and Karen Stepner all worked as district attorneys in the same office at the same time, then came over and worked underneath each other at the, in the same office at the same time. Well, at the time, Vinny didn't know of Judge Corrigan's potential prejudicial relationship with the prosecution led by Carolyn Stepner in 2015. Judge Corrigan's behavior did already seem overly sympathetic to the prosecution and the two accusers. It's so obvious it's ridiculous. You know, every time we uh, objected, she uh, overruled and, you know, was sustained for this one. I can count on one hand how many times it went our way. Here's Vinny's mom, Cindy, referring to how the judge would intervene when the accusers were being questioned. Again, their names are redacted. Like I said, she interfered every time getting riled up where you're going to get them to crack. She'd stop it and slow it down. She refused our request for medical records. She also improperly allowed testimony about Molino evidence. That's breaking the law. Here's Cindy discussing one of Vinny's appeal hearings. They did ask about the Molino thing, like I said, which is when they testified to set up the narrative of when he was 15 and younger, but he wasn't charged with that, those dates. It broke the law for being that allowed, but that's our narrative. He should have only been charged for 16 to 19. And they never even mentioned half of that. They only mentioned when they were younger, okay? Because it would look worse. So essentially the testimony of the two accusers had specific events related to when Vinny was a minor. But that testimony about when Vinny was a minor, even though it was lies, was used to try Vinny as an adult, meaning over the age of 16. And then every time I talked to my brother, the father of one of the accusers, the story changed. First it was two times. Then it was until he was seven years old. Then it was until he was 10 years old. Then it was until he was 12 years old. That's when I decided we really need to contact an attorney because they're changing their story as they go along. So what seems to have happened is the two accusers were coached to extend the dates of the abuse to have Vinny charged as an adult. But any specific testimony about the abuse placed Vinny at the ages of 13 to 15 as a minor. Here's a clip from Patrick Michael Magaro, an appellate lawyer in New York, explaining how Molyneux works. In order to introduce evidence of uncharged crimes or bad acts, the prosecution must show, first, by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant actually committed those acts, and then they have to show that the probative effect, which is basically the value of the evidence and the ability of that evidence to prove a necessary fact, is greater than the prejudicial effect it has on the defendant or the ability to prejudice the jury against the defendant. So Judge Corrigan allowed testimony about Vinny's behavior as a child that was never proven in court in the prosecution's attempt to paint Vinny's character and try him as an adult. 
In addition, she also allowed the prosecution to reference other accusations made by the mother of accuser one that the police investigated and ultimately dropped, meaning they are not admissible under Molyneux. And because of the ability and the tendency of this type of evidence that defendant committed other crimes or other bad acts is usually too prejudicial to present to a jury, Molyneux evidence is supposed to be used not all that often. Um, however, we see courts sometimes improperly allow the prosecution to introduce Molyneux evidence and basically conduct a trial by assassination of the defendant's character and turn the jury against him. And this is always a wonderful, wonderful issue to raise on appeal. In addition, Judge Corrigan allowed the prosecution to withhold evidence from the defense until days before the trial, creating an obstacle to prevent an adequate defense. So we didn't know these crazy stories they were telling until a day and a half before Vinny's trial. So now you're left scrambling. How do you like have people say, no, there's no way that could have happened, this and that? You don't. Now why did Judge Corrigan allow this? Because it's right out of the Kathleen Rice playbook. The problem with Vinny's trial was there were no exact dates. They did a narrative like, oh, it was on or around March 9th, which is his birthday this year, to March 9th this year. Here's another section of that Newsday article read by an actor about Carlos Ramos, a man who was falsely accused of child molestation, and eventually his conviction was overturned. Other allegations against Rice appear in an appellate decision involving New York City Emergency Medical Services Lieutenant Carlos Ramos, who was convicted in 1995 of sexually abusing a 10-year-old. Ramos's attorney accused prosecutors of misconduct, stating in the appeal that the prosecution led by Rice had withheld information concerning the dates of the alleged attacks. Given those dates, Ramos would have produced records showing he was at work at the time he was accused of abusing the boy, according to the appeal. Kings County Supreme Court Justice John M. Leventhal agreed that prosecutors' actions severely interfered with defendants' ability to adequately prepare a defense and amounted to a denial of due process. Rice defended her handling of the Ramos case during the civil deposition in the Butts lawsuit. Rice said she could not have disclosed the date of alleged abuse because she didn't learn it until the boy took the stand. In her experience with sex crimes, she said there was a difficulty to get children to remember specific dates, so prosecutors would often charge that the abuse occurred in a general time period. Pace Law Professor Gershman said a prosecutor is responsible for getting such information and then ensuring that it's been turned over to the defense. She's preparing a case for trial that could result in a person spending much of the rest of his life in jail, and yet she doesn't ascertain the dates the abuse occurred, Gershman said. In addition, during the trial, the prosecution only presented photos of the two accusers as children, and the only photo they used of Vinny was as an adult, his mugshot, subconsciously submitting to the jury that Vinny was an adult male who abused children. Judge Corrigan's inappropriate allowance of this was acknowledged on appeal. And the district attorney showing his photo when he was, uh, his mugshot photo, when we went to the appellate court, they admitted that that was wrong and that should have never happened. And cases have been turned over for that particular incident right there. Why are they showing a picture of him when he was arrested? They were accusing him of doing something when he was 13 years old. It's Vinny's opinion that the jury's common sense was eclipsed because they were imagining these men as children, but Vinny as an adult, when in fact they were all children at the time, and the larger truth here is that none of this happened at all. Judge Corrigan also showed incredible sympathy to the two accusers during Vinny's sentencing. Quite literally, she deferred to them on how long Vinny should go to prison. She said that she could have sentenced him to 
75 years. Uh, the judge asked uh, both the uh, and uh, how much how much time that, that Vinny should get, and they they both said, well, he took 10 years of our lives that he should get 10 years. So the judge sentenced him to 20 years. Worst vision that sticks in my head is when they took him out in handcuffs. And he turned to me and he said, Mom, fight for me, Mom. And I said, I will to the day I die. There's so much here. And, and Kathleen Rice and Madeline Singus and, and that whole crowd are just a horror story. And it's very sad. The Board of Appeals did shorten Vinny's sentence by five years, deeming 20 too harsh. And Vinny would have the opportunity to go home early on good behavior if he admitted guilt first. But Vinny refuses to do that because he never committed any of these crimes. So once you're convicted of a sex offense, there's so many different types of uh, restrictions and red tape that are on, on top of somebody's sentence. So I was sentenced to 15 years um, and something in corrections where you can be released early for good time, which is good behavior, taking like all these rehabilitative programs that they force you to take. One of those programs is a sex offender program where they try to rehabilitate you, find out reasons why you did what you did. But one of the main components of that is that you have to admit guilt. You have to admit that you committed the crime that you're here for. If you don't do that within that program, they remove you from the program. You don't get credit for it, and you could be taken, uh, your good time could be taken away. So for me, my maximum expiration date where I could be released is 2030. If I'm good, I can be released between 27 and 28. But if I don't admit guilt and I don't say that I committed this crime, I'm not going to get any type of release anytime soon. So I'm further punished for continuing to maintain my innocence. And Vinny's foresight and determination to stand in his innocence might ultimately help his conviction get overturned. Again, here's Lonnie's story about Jesse Friedman's appeal efforts. And we were granted a, new, a hearing based on, on, on newly discovered evidence and absolute innocence in the middle of the hearing. And we had ready to testify, ready to bring in witnesses. Court of Appeals in New York State changed the law that said if you had pled guilty, you could not have it innocence here. Here's a bit more from the documentary. You're telling the defendant, look, if you plead guilty, you know, we'll give you a good deal and um, on, you know, two charges. But if you insist on going to trial, we're going to put a thousand and three charges on you. And if you're convicted of all those charges, you're going to rot in jail the rest of your life. This is Jesse Friedman speaking now. She just kept telling me over and over, the only thing to do is to plead guilty and get the best deal you can. You can't go to trial. It doesn't matter if you're guilty or innocent. You can't go to trial because if you go to trial, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. I said, but Ma, I didn't do it. So that doesn't matter. You have to plead guilty. So in the middle of our hearing, we were essentially shut down. And that was one of the great tragedies mm -hmm. that I've worked on. And I've worked on many tragedies. So while I'm sad Vinny is still in prison, and there's no chance of him coming home on things like good behavior. I'm so proud of my friend for standing in his conviction and his innocence and fighting against the problematic system that put him there in the first place. So I'm continuing to be punished, but I'm not gonna sit here after I've been fighting for my life, and I'm not gonna admit just because the Department of Corrections wants to put me in a program and tells me that I have to admit guilt. Because then when I continue to try to fight for my life, it's gonna be used against me in the court. They don't care if you're um, claiming innocence. They don't care if you're innocent. If you have a conviction, they say you need to take the program. If you don't take the program, you don't get time off your sentence, you stay in prison until your maximum release date. 
So it, it's difficult. And, you know, I've had this conversation with family and friends, and they said, you're going to have to decide what to do. And I said, for the sake of me, my family, and for, you know, my grandparents who were defamed as well, along with me, I'm not going to sit here and say that I did something just to go home early. He's more worried about us at home than he is about himself in there. That says most of just about anything you need to know about him and his character. Our next episode will be the last of our season, and we'll cover Vinny's unfair, messy, and even by the observation of the court officer's bogus trial. The court officers, everybody in the court was in shock that, that they said guilty. On behalf of Vinny and myself, thank you for listening to this episode of Family of Conviction. To offer aid or advice to the family or watch the documentary short film, please see our show notes.